This audio is from the Axis Church and is from our sermon series, The Gospel of Matthew, Following the Unexpected King. For more information about the Axis Church or its mission in Nashville, Tennessee, go to theaxischurch.org. Let me pray and then we'll get busy with uh, 14, 15, 16, and 17 of chapter 9. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much, Lord, for uh, letting us have the opportunity today to, to preach from the Scriptures, to learn from the Scriptures, uh, and to consider things, Lord, that you have for us. Lord, I ask for your gift to everyone here, Lord, that you would gift us with the ability of engaging with this text, engaging with the sermon, allowing us to focus and and give heavy consideration to who you are in this text and who we are in this text. And Lord, would you help us disengage from other things that concern our minds, even right now in this moment? Would you allow distractions to to be uh, ceased and to stop so that we can focus in even more on what it is that you have for us today? Lord, help this just not be another sermon, another, another gathering, but Lord, would you speak to us? Would you teach us? Would we learn something today? Regardless of what week we've had or regardless of what background we come from, Lord, um, you can do these things. So I ask you to do this, please. Help me communicate clearly in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, all right, chapter 9, let's look in verse 14. As we begin today, then the disciples of John, okay, this is John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, the the guy who uh, says this is um, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, like this is the guy who who ate locusts and honey and and had this huge beard and and all this uh, crazy stuff going on, baptizing people. He's the guy who baptized Jesus. Um, So this is, he's a a good guy. So the, the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, why do we... And the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. So fasting here is is referring to the abstaining of food for religious purposes. And they they seem a bit confused. Perhaps you could say a little frustrated that they were fasting, and yet Jesus and his followers were feasting. Matthew places this interaction to be right there uh, in in the previous section of Scripture, the, the previous portion, where Jesus is feasting with the tax collectors and sinners. Feasting. So these guys are fasting, all right? And so you get a sense that it was a it was a regional fast, because you've got the, you know, the disciples of John and the Pharisees. Fasting, and then over here you've got Jesus not fasting but feasting. So what's what's going on? Why aren't you fasting? And so Jesus responds. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn? Or the wedding guests, he's using this as an analogy for his disciples. Can the disciples mourn? Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Speaking of himself being the bridegroom. The days will come when the bridegroom is taking away. This is speaking of his crucifixion, his death, which is the first time, by the way, it's mentioned in Matthew here. So there'll come a time when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast or mourn, as we'll see. So Jesus says to them, 
Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, wait a minute. Jesus doesn't give an, an answer, but he follows up with a question, which was typical for, for, fair, for, uh, for religious leaders. It was typical for rabbis in order to get to the root issue of a lot of their teachings. But primarily with Jesus, you see this happen a lot. But they don't even really go there yet to set context for what's going on around this feasting and this interaction with these, with these Pharisees and these other disciples of John, experts in the law, when Jesus said bridegroom. Like, it's not just an analogy for, for missing someone. When Jesus said bridegroom, every single expert of the law that was present Immediately, their, their thoughts went to Hosea. Immediately, their thoughts went to Isaiah. Immediately, their thoughts went back to the Old Testament law, which they're experts in. And they're like, whoa, did you hear what Jesus just said? Passages like Isaiah 54 would just pop in these scholars' minds where it says, For your maker is your husband. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. For the Lord has called you like a wife. So what's Jesus saying here? And then Isaiah 62, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. He's using biblical language to point to a greater truth here as he's engaging these scholars of the law. Hosea 2, you will call me my husband. Jesus is referring to the Old Testament teaching of Yahweh being the bridegroom. And Israel, his chosen people, being the bride. Here, Christ is claiming to be God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of covenant, the one who speaks. Jesus is the, the one who Israel is waiting for, the one whom they will worship forever in eternity. He is the God-man bridegroom. And he's claiming to be Yahweh present throughout all of history. The bride here represents the church, all those who by faith trust in the finished saving work of the Messiah, which forgives them and pardons them and justifies them, redeems them, sanctifies them, seals them, and ultimately delivers them into the presence of God forever. But first, the Messiah, as we learn in verse 15, has to go to the cross and die. That's the meaning of being taken from them. So hearing this bridegroom language... All the, all the Pharisees and scribes would be taken back. It's hard to put ourselves mentally in that room and to feel what they felt. But knowing what we know about church history, this would have been like a conversation stopper. Okay, this is like, whoa, time out, what? Jesus is coming and he's providing answers He's providing truth to the longing and the waiting that these Pharisees had, the questions that they had. He's coming with authority, speaking truth, claiming to be God. These men would have felt extremely vulnerable and insecure about the authority that Jesus had. But if you look carefully, they, they ask, why aren't you fasting and Jesus doesn't say, well, because... No, he asks a question, but look at the question. The question seems odd, right? Why don't they fast? Jesus says, 
why should they mourn is essentially what happens. You see, fasting at the time had become primarily associated with grieving. You fasted when someone died. You fasted when there was a a national catastrophe and so forth. However, there was much more to fasting than this. This is just what the Pharisees had reduced it down to. It was only associated with mourning. And so Jesus' point here is if Jesus, the groom, is here, then the bride must rejoice. Not fast, not mourn. Let's celebrate. Weddings typically aren't the places of, of mourning, but rather happiness and celebration and dancing. The people of God who long awaited the Savior need to celebrate that he is now with them, present in the flesh, saving them. And then one day, Jesus will be taken away, speaking of his crucifixion, and then his disciples can rightly fast, but not now. God's action in Christ is happier and more joyful than any earthly wedding because God is bringing salvation apart from human accomplishment and requirement. God is bringing salvation through Christ without human accomplishment or requirement. And this is where the conversation seems to shift. Okay, So Jesus continues the same thought, though taking it further with two analogies. He's going deep, deeper here into what he's really getting at. So hang with me. Let's go to verse 16. No one puts a piece of new cloth, unshrunk cloth, on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is unfermented or new wine put into old wineskins. Wineskins were just like these leather pouches that you stored wine in for up to a year. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but the new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. So before a new cloth is, is sewn onto an old piece of clothing, it must be treated, it must be washed or shrunk. Otherwise, whenever it's washed, it's going to rip and tear the tear the garment even more. This happened to me being raised in the 80s. Uh, we patched a lot of things, and then my mom went to the iron-on patch. Anybody from the 80s remember the iron-on denim patches? Anybody? Those were awesome, especially when they started wearing off and flapping around. Um, <laughs> really weird, because uh, I couldn't wear torn jeans to church, so that's how it was. And then these, these old wineskins, they've, they've already been stretched to capacity, by the original fermentation process. And so if you put new wine in there, the gases as they would expand would just cause the, uh, the, the skin to just explode. It's, it's a lot like stretching an old rubber band. It used to have elasticity, then it's gone. It just, it just pops in your hand. It doesn't hold up. Same idea. Contextually, these were absurd thoughts. No one would put an unshrunken piece of cloth on a, on a garment that's been washed already. No one would put new wine in old wineskins. That is absolute foolishness. Jesus knew that they would think this. He knew that they would find this absurd. So what, what's Jesus getting at? How's this associated with their fasting and their religious ceremony, ceremonial lives of these men. You see, Jesus is using 
fasting or their particular understanding of fasting as a way of addressing their entire pursuit of obeying the law and all of their other ceremonial laws that they've created. Okay? This is significant to the sermon here. Make sure you understand this. Jesus uses the opportunity here of dealing with their religious, law-keeping, moralistic view of fasting as an opportunity, as an inroad to open it up, to point to the fact that they relied heavily on their religious obedience as a means of feeling superior and sufficient. Jesus, he's not really changing the subject as much as he's bringing clarity to a greater overarching subject at hand. It's not fasting. He's looking at the entire way that these men were thinking that they were made righteous and sufficient before God. Now, just as foolish as it is to use a piece of unshrunk cloth for patching and for old wineskins for fermenting, so it is foolish to continue down the moralistic, legalistic path of self-righteous, self-justification, of thinking that you can make yourself clean enough as long as you work hard enough at being good enough before the holy God. The unshrunken cloth, insufficient. Old wineskins, insufficient. The old-time religion and all their ceremonial laws, now at the appearance of the saving Son of God, insufficient. The, the patch and the new wine, their images of a powerful, vibrant, new relationship with God, which burst out of the dried-up confines of formal religion, the formal regulations and rules and laws and requirements of the old religion has been successfully completed and fulfilled by Jesus. Now the formal regulations, they must give way to the joy of the finished work of the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. This is the teaching that the Apostle Paul, later, after uh, Christ had, had died on the cross, been raised from the dead and ascended, and, and birthed the church, Paul comes in as a man changed by Jesus, and he begins unpacking these truths for the church. And he puts it this way. Look at Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. This is important here to, to the theological cause born under the law, to re redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then in Galatians 3, Paul unpacks it more. For all who rely on works of the law are under a what? Curse. Well, why is that? For it is written... Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Galatians 2 Paul's continuing to swing away at this. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, there's no innate defect in the law itself, which is holy and righteous and good. Rather, uh, that's uh, uh, Romans seven twelve. Rather, these works are God's holy requirements, which we sinners, we cannot adequately meet. The problem is not the law. The problem is us. And Jesus is addressing this overarching greater issue of the limitation of, of us meeting the law and him being sufficient and meeting the law for us. It's happening here in this passage. Now, one of my favorite theological works is called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Please laugh. I, I dare you, okay? This book is phenomenal. I challenge anyone to read this book. It's by Sally Lloyd-Jones. Commercial here. This book will change you. It's phenomenal. It goes through the entire scripture, hitting high notes and looking at Jesus coming off every page. It's beautiful. Can't speak more highly for a book. And this is required reading for anyone uh, who's assessed with Acts 29 Church Plain Network, by the way. Um, it's phenomenal. You will not be disappointed. But in here, uh, I want to read a portion from where um, God was giving Moses the Ten Commandments for the children of Israel to live under, which is the capital L law of the Bible. So God called Moses up to the mountain. The great mountain shook. A thick cloud fell. Thunder roared. Lightning crackled. And God gave Moses ten rules called commandments. I want you to love me more than anything else in the world. And know that I love you too, God told them. That's the most important thing of all. God gave them other rules like don't make yourselves pretend gods. Don't kill people or steal or lie. The rules showed God's people how to live and how to be close to him and how to be happy. They showed how life worked best. God's promises to always look God promises us to always look after us. Moses said, "Will you love him and keep these rules?" We can do it. Yes, we promise. But they were wrong. They couldn't do it. No matter how hard they tried, they could never keep God's rules all the time. God knew they couldn't. And he wanted them to know too. Friends, that's the purpose of the law. The law doesn't exist for us to look at it and think, okay, I got it. The law exists for us to look at it and say, there's no way. I can never be that good. Only one person, and she has capital P here, only one person could keep all the rules. And many years later, God would send him to stand in their place and be perfect for them because the rules couldn't save them. Only God could save them. And this is the point that Paul is addressing in Galatians. It's the point that Jesus is using 
leveraging their question about fasting to bring to the, the larger issue at hand. No one but Jesus can keep and obey the law so perfectly that it's a once and for all good enough type of keeping. The great news of the gospel, though, is that Jesus did, in fact, keep the law perfectly. And he did so for us in our place. Jesus did not come to make the law better. He didn't come to introduce different rules on top of the rules. Jesus came to introduce an entire new ball game. Grace and not law. He has fulfilled and not destroyed the law. It's important. He did not destroy the law. He fulfilled the law. He perfectly accomplished the law. The law is upheld. The law is still while we celebrate grace because it still stands there as strong. Jesus has performed for us and he has met the righteous requirement for us. So the result, the result is found in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation, shame, judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is crazy. That is radical. When you look at the law, we all stand condemned. No one is that perfect except Jesus. But because of Jesus, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So Jesus is bringing about a new, different way of worshiping Yahweh, a better way, not based on our law-keeping or our, our fastings and keeping of ceremonial laws, but it's made possible by the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, with his Spirit coming in us and making us new. You see, Jesus has met the righteous requirement of fulfilling the law for us. And the Bible terms this our justification. Growing up, I, as a way of remembering justification, it was taught to me that it's just as if I've never sinned. And that's partly true, but it's also just as if I've always obeyed. Our sinful record is removed, and we are given a perfect record. Both. It's beautiful. It's all because of Jesus' life and death, his resurrection, and what all he accomplished there as he came into the middle of human history. Not only can Christians know that there is now no present condemnation from God, but they can also look to the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, and they can see their final judgment at the end of history already carried out on Christ on the cross. And it's by faith that Christians are justified through the completed work of Jesus Christ, where he kept the law that could not be kept by anyone else. He was faithful to God, his father. He was crucified. He was raised to redeem people from the curse of the law. He was born under the law and kept it perfectly and always and died to redeem those who couldn't keep it. Who would by faith look at him as savior and as the sufficient sacrifice for them. Now let me share with you how I've experienced the struggle between law and grace 
in my own life. Perhaps some of you can relate. Being raised in the religious South, being a pastor's kid, winning all the Bible drills, having several books of the New Testament memorized. I remember being 18 years old, almost, almost 19 years old, and this was my resume, and I could quote it to you. Even if you didn't want to hear it, I would quote it to you if you ever asked me to do anything bad. At age 18, I'd never kissed, I'd never dated, I never cursed, and I made sure to tell everybody around me that if they ever cursed, that they should never curse in my presence. I didn't care who you were. I never watched R-rated movies, though I would go to theaters and hand out tracts and tell you that you were going to hell for going to movies. I only watched three PG-13 movies. One was Uncle Buck, and I walked out of it at the theater. <laughs> Too many curse words. Only two. That was the rule I made. Two curse words, and you have to leave the movie or turn it off and take it back. <laughs> Rewind it first so you won't get charged. That's the 80s for you. You know. And there was a dilemma for me because The Last Mohicans was filmed in my hometown. A lot of my friends were in the movie. That's how old I am. And it's a recent film. Um... <laughs> And I wanted to watch it because I wanted to see where I went fishing. I wanted to see my friends in the movie, but I could not relinquish the ability to brag and boast about never watching an already movie. I never smoked, never drank, never held an open beer can. If picking up trash, I came across a Mountain Dew can, I'd pick it up. Gatorade bottle, or back then, can, I'd pick it up. A beer bottle, leave it on the ground. I never saw drugs, not one time. Never did drugs, obviously. I never told a dirty joke. Never listened to secular music except Frank Sinatra. <laughs> I I'm not lying about this. <laughs> the Beach Boys and Elvis Presley. Elvis was gospel. The rest of my music was Southern Gospel. Can't go wrong with the Kingsman in Gold City. And I, I still remember uh, in 1995 being in the balcony of the Asheville Civic Center in Asheville, North Carolina, and the group Point of Grace. Anybody know Point of Grace? Our youth group went and defiled ourselves by listening to such vile music. And so as a protest, I sat in silent protest because of the satanic rhythm by which this group played their music. I promise. And I felt so superior. I never owned or wore clothing with bands on them, alcohol, cigarette slogans, nothing like that. Never wore tennis shoes to church. Never wore blue jeans to church. I always made sure that no one around me ever had their hat on if I was praying. I didn't care if you were a stranger. I didn't care if you were 20 yards from me. I was, I remember telling my friends, hey man, you're going to go to the dance? You go, I, don't, I don't dance, man. Like that's, that's not for Christians. 
Hey, man, you want to come to this party? No, nah, man, I don't do that. I've, I've never drank in my life. I've never smoked, never, never watched an already movie. I've never cursed. I've, and I'll just list. I'm, I'm telling you, I can remember being a high school kid going through all these things. I'll, and I remember them saying, man, you're perfect. You're like, if you've never done these things, you're like perfect. And I was perfect compared to my other friends, I thought. Yet I was dead. I was dead in my sin. And being the best of the dead is still dead. I was dead in my self-righteousness. I was blind to my religious performance. I was completely immune. I was numb. I was ignorant to my true need. Yet I was alive in my religion. But it's like bragging about having the lowest score in all those who failed. But I was there bragging about it. I felt superior around all those around me who simply were not as good as I was. And then if I ever messed up, which didn't happen often because of, of the religion that I created, but if I ever did mess up, I felt, and these were the words as I was writing this sermon, I was thinking through these words, I felt stupid. I felt like I wasn't good enough. And I began to resent myself and and. The sacrifice would be making myself feel terrible for doing that, for getting that close to something so terrible. And I would begin to judge other people around me with such hatred. I had subconsciously created. I had designed my own religion where I was the standard. I was the best and I was pretty good at being the best compared to those around me. And I was worshiping my performance as a way of feeling superior. Yet in the middle of this, I was looking deep into pornography. I was cursing people with my thoughts and my mind and my soul. I was gossiping every single chance I had to talk bad about you. I would talk bad about you because it made me feel better. Because one, I caught you. Two, I didn't do what you did. And so it was an opportunity to elevate myself even further. I had, and this, this is terribly cruel. This is not funny whatsoever. I would literally have songs that I would sing about people burning in hell forever. I would sing these songs. I had all the Christian lingo. I was judging people, hating people in the depths of my soul because of how careless they were with their lives. They drink, they smoke, they curse. They went into that movie theater. God doesn't love them. There's no way he loves them as much as he loves me. They don't love God enough. I used God as a way of making myself my own God and as a way of judging other people, hurting, crushing other people. And this is the problem with the law. We try to keep it, and we can't, so we manipulate it. We become our own judge. We become the one who determines who's good, what's good. Who's bad? What's bad? And then we realize at the end of the day, whether I vocalized this or not, I knew in my heart of hearts, and I could tell by the way I punished myself, I knew I wasn't good enough. 
I could never keep all the rules. I was looking for more rules to keep. And even if we can make the outward appearance look perfect, the inward core of who we are, the heart of what matters, is still left unchanged. And so though a curse word never comes out of my mouth, I'm still a far way off from having the right heart in moments where I'm holding back the words. But man, there's just a fire of hatred and hostility about to erupt on anybody at any given moment. We're stuck there. But then enters Jesus. Not limited by the subjectivity of whether we keep the law or not, how we adjust the law or not. He comes in as the objective, truth-giving Savior. Jesus comes in, God in the flesh. He enters human history and he announces that his kingdom has come and he announces that he is the Son of God, the promised Savior of the world. He's here. Let's celebrate. Jesus has come and he is fulfilling the, the requirement of obeying the law perfectly. So do you see the reason to celebrate and not fast? Do you see the reason to celebrate and not mourn? We're no longer stuck to our own devices of formulating our own ways of feeling superior or good enough or finding our identity in what we do or don't do always and never. Those lists are gone. Jesus has come to be the once and for all sacrifice in order to restore all those who will believe in him back into relationship with God once and for all. And as he comes in with this saving gospel work, he's introducing grace rather than just mere counsel on how to work harder at obeying God's law perfectly. Now because of God's grace provided through Jesus Christ, the previous religious structures and their ceremonial laws, they're insufficient. They're totally inadequate because of what Jesus is accomplishing here. And so now rather than judgment, we get love. We get grace. Jesus was judged in our place for our sin as us. Rather than silence between us and God, we have dialogue because it was Jesus who on the cross experienced the silence of the Father for us. Rather than being required to keep a list, we freely live because Jesus has kept the list for us perfectly. Now there's grace rather than law. So how does, how does Jesus fulfilling the law and the righteous requirement make a difference? How does it make a difference? How does the bridegroom coming change things for us? I'll describe it to you the way that my friend Ray Ortland describes it. With Mr. Law and Mr. Grace. We were married to Mr. Law and it was horrible. It was miserable. He was a good man in his way, but he didn't understand our weaknesses. He, he didn't understand our insecurities and, and limitations. He would come home every evening and he would ask us, so how was your day? And before you were able to answer, he would say, did, did you do what I told you to do? Did you make the kids behave? Did you get all the things at the store that I need you to get? All of them? Every, every single thing? Do you have your completed list? Can I see your completed list? 
as he goes through the pantry looking for everything that he asked for. Did you waste any time? Did you do everything that I told you to do? So much expectations, so many demands. And as hard as we tried, and we tried so hard, we couldn't be perfect. We forgot things that were important to him. We couldn't help it. The, children's, it's, the children, it seemed like they always misbehaved. They were always bouncing off the walls, making crumbs appear out of nowhere. We failed in other ways, and we hoped he would never find out. It was a miserable marriage because Mr. Law, he was always pointing out our failings. And his remedy, always the same. You have tomorrow to do better. Now get it together. Come on, I've made it clear. What more do you want from me? What more can I give? But we couldn't. We tried relentlessly, but we couldn't get it together. But Mr. Law died. Thank God, Mr. Law died. And we remarried. This time, we married Mr. Grace. Our new husband comes home every day, and the house is a mess. The kids are terrible. Dinner is burning on the stove. The car windows are down outside in the pouring rain. There's dirt everywhere. There's flour all over the kitchen. And we've even had other men in the house all day long. Yet he enters and he looks us deep in the eyes and he sweeps us into his arms and he says, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. I chose you, you know. Oh, I love you so much. You're mine. You're mine forever. I'm never going to stop loving you, not for a second. You can't mess up the love I have for you. You're so deep within my heart, I can never let it go. You know I'd die for you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never, ever going to leave you. And then our hearts just melt. We don't understand such love. We expect him to come away and just judge us and hammer away at our heart, just saying cruel things that are true. But instead, he treats us so well. Being married to Mr. Law, it never changed us, not for a second. If anything, it just made everything so much heavier. But being married to Mr. Grace is changing us little by little. And we're experiencing more and more weightless feelings throughout the day. Mr. Grace is Jesus Christ. He's the bridegroom. And he did, in fact, die for us. And knowing that we could never be good enough, Jesus came to be good enough for us. Now our lives are marked by grace because of our restored relationship with God provided by Jesus and his redeeming work on our behalf. My prayer for us as a church and for all of us individually is that we would believe this, that we would believe that Jesus Christ has accomplished the heavy lifting for us, that he's done the saving work for us, that there is grace there, and that we would experience what it's like to live at rest, at peace, personally experiencing shalom in our heart. That we would know who we are, that our identity would not be informed by 
how well we do these things or how often we do these things, but that we would see that Jesus came to free us from this. My prayer is that we will be saved and we would live in this freedom from this old-time religion of personal performance and begin to live more and more under the influence of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ in our hearts. And that day by day, we, we feel a little bit lighter than the day before because we're, we're living a little bit more in light of his saving work, in light of his grace, practically. We can loosen up a little bit. This is my prayer for us. He's come as Mr. Grace, knowing that Mr. Law has taken its toll on your hearts. He's here to open his arms. Just believe him. Just trust him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for saving me, Lord, and, and going over that. It's regretful and sad and sorry. But Lord, thank you for, for saving someone who really thought he was saving himself. Lord, my prayer is that you would do that for so many people here today. Lord, would we, would we be reminded of the salvation that we have in you and through you? And Lord, would, would those who are banking on Mr. Law saving them, Lord, would they see the foolishness in that? It's like pouring new wine into old wineskins. It's just foolish. And Lord, would we see, Lord, the offer of faith and trust and belief in you to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness, Lord, and to save us forever. And Lord, we just jump after that. Lord, give us hearts that long for you and, and long to be like you and long to experience you in the day-to-day -day moments of believing Mr. Grace and not Mr. Law. Lord, help us. Thank you so much for saving us. Help those who need to be saved today where they look to you as Savior, good enough, the one who did the work for them, where they just believe you. God, do this. We love you. Thank you for your activity here amongst us and in my own heart. In Christ's name, amen.